Hello, I'm Daniel Weinman and this is Brave New Brands, the podcast where we get to know the stories behind our most authentic consumer products. And today we have David Roger. David is a 30 under 30 Forbes entrepreneur and co-founder and CEO at Felix Grey, the revolutionary eyewear brand that utilizes blue light technology to protect your eyes from the glare of your computer screen. I hope you enjoy it. Let's check it out. Hey, David. How are you, man? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation, man. Maybe we should just kick it off because the, the idea is for us to chat freely here and we just started doing it. Sure. Um, I read you've been uh, a music DJ for, for a radio program. <laughs> is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Back in college, my friend and I hosted. We, we, were, we were new to it, so uh, we got the late, late night spot. So we were like 11 p.m. to 2 a.m., You know, oh, but, but it was but fun. But that's the 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 spot. Oh, it was great. People, people it listen was, to to. Oh, for sure. It was it was it was really fun to play. Um, that that was just a. It was just nice to be able to share different music. And now, I mean, music is so easy to discover. I mean, I use Spotify, and and Spotify's discover platform is just yeah. incredible. But yeah. back in the day, it was much harder. So you know, a lot of it was YouTube and going. You know, just someone told you about this thing and then you had to figure out how to legally download yeah. it because you know they didn't have Spotify so uh, it's 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 way easier now to discover music but it, it was still very good to to have like curated music that's presented to us by people that are sharing right yeah and Spotify even has all those people who make music right so they they yeah. curate the playlist like I love there's a if you any of you guys know uh, the African heat playlist which is just like the biggest songs out of just the continent every they update it every week and that stuff is just like really fun to just kind of dance to and vibe to but it's it's really cool that i mean they employ a lot of people who their sole job is just to make awesome playlists talking about playing uh, uh, earlier today i was um playing around with your website and doing the virtual try-ons and oh, then nice. my my wife and my three-year-old daughter joined me and my daughter couldn't stop like Let's switch to, to this other one. And then she, 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 she had a blast using the platform. <laughs> <laughs> that, makes, that makes me really happy to hear. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And we've seen a lot of people um, interact with the, with the software, which is really cool. Yeah, that's, that's a, a great segue to talk about. You had some kind of experience with tech or at least startups before Felix Grade, right? So, uh, so yeah, so I graduated college in 2013. And I went to work for the CEO of Zappos, Tony Shea. Yeah. He was the former CEO uh, and he passed away, unfortunately, um, late in 2020. But I worked for his project to revitalize downtown Las Vegas, which is where Zappos is based. Um, so that was kind of like real estate meets startup. But before yeah. that, I had also worked uh, at a tech startup in New York um, for essentially the summer and into part of my senior year. And then the summer before that, I actually started a new newspaper on campus, uh, which was essentially um, a decentralized version of the newspaper that was specific to each college campus uh, as part of the, the company's called the, the Odyssey, and that was the umbrella. Um, so I actually started the Cornell chapter, and then it ended up, after we had enough sales, ended up hiring a sales, like we ended up hiring a whole editorial team um, through 
you know, hiring. It was all students who are doing stuff yeah. for free. <laughs> uh, so it's a good bit. It's a good business model for the Odyssey. Uh, they don't, it's free labor, but um, yeah, I, you know, I started getting into entrepreneurship. I'd say I came to school thinking I wanted to be a lawyer my freshman year. And by the end of my freshman year, I was like, I don't want to do this. I just don't think it has enough. Uh, there's not enough creativity. There's not an, yeah. an aspect of, of building, uh, the problem solving exists, but it doesn't, it's not a blank canvas. And I like to, it's fun to work with a blank canvas. You have, you know, you go in a direction, you don't know if that direction is going to be right or wrong for sometimes a, a couple of years even. Um, and I think that having that blank canvas is, is really exciting. It allows for some of the hardest work and some of the most thoughtful work. And, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it. Yeah. Awesome. Before we, we get into Felix Gray, we just want to mention, so you have a sense of how much of Tony Shea fan, fan I am. We actually have head of WOW uh, position at our company. Because, oh, I love that. Because of ever, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I think it was to 2010 when um, he released uh, his book, Delivering Happiness. And since then, then all my companies had this uh, service or orientation based, uh, basically inspired. And when we first hired our head of WOW, I said, because he had, he had the same background with me of reading the, the book back then, I just said, basically, we want you to be our Tony Shea. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's so true. I think, look, I, I think at the end of the day, what is successful is what customers want, right? So it's not yes. what's the best, you know, it, look, it all has to come together, but it's not, you can't build a business based on the business model. You can't build the business based on, you know, what you think people are going to want. You have to build a business on what people actually want, right? So if you're like, I'm doing all these things, I think it's going to, I think it's working and it's no one's reacting to it. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. I think that that goes down to, obviously a very important aspect, which is a customer experience level, right? So, yeah. the, you know, cause that's your, that is your closest and most personal interaction with the brand, but it also goes into the products that you're creating, the pricing that you have, the type of branding that you're, you know, the conversations that you're talking about, the branding that you have, all those things are, if the customer doesn't gravitate towards it and want it, they're going to go somewhere else. And, you know, Tony, I think was ahead of his time in saying e-com is providing a really engineering tech heavy experience that doesn't have a personal touch yeah. and you walk into a store and you know especially back in you know 2010 you know 2020 you know 2009 when zappos purchased and you know had been growing very significantly you walk into like a nordstrom's you're gonna have a, a great experience with the buyer particularly back then right um yeah. they're gonna be able to to tell you different you know what what is going to fit your shoe better. They're going to be able to say, you know, what is, uh, what's a new style that's really in, or, you know, you didn't really get that online back in the day. And so yes. you know, Tony's thing was, Hey, let's create this really good experience. If I go into a Nordstrom's and I need to return something, they'll be happy to do it. I do it online. It's a pain. And now I think with Zappos and obviously with Amazon, you know, the customer has been treated so well. And that's why those companies have been able to grow, right? Because at yeah. the end of the day, customers are going to them over others because, it's just a better overall product that they're getting, right? And that includes yep. the experience at the customer level. And how much of an influence was your experience with him when you decided to, to start Felix Gray? 
Yeah. So, you know, I got to downtown project and so Tony had put in 350 million of his own money into revitalizing downtown Las Vegas, which is where Zappos is based. And when you have a lot of things going on and you're also used to software, you know, things are a little bit hectic, right? Particularly in the software world, it's easy to you build something and then you have to rebuild things. And it, it, there's a little bit more flexibility when you're working in the actual physical space. It's really hard to like build a building, have its plumbing and then change the plumbing. If the, you know, if, if you didn't do it right the first time. So we had all these projects going on that were ranging between usually a million dollar projects to $25 million projects. And Frank, frankly, we had no idea if these projects are going to make money, if they're going to lose money, we just didn't have any. We didn't have any of the discipline at the financial side of understanding if this was going to be successful, if the business model was going to work. And so I got brought in, and they basically said, "Figure this out." So I had to like, I had all these. We had all these different projects going on. <laughs> I love this. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I had right at, at school. I had essentially studied. I had never taken a finance class, so I had taken like one accounting class, and that was it. And so I didn't really know how to do this, but I think part of being part of a startup is saying, all right, I'm just going to dive in and do it if you need me to do it, right? And if you're not doing a good job, that's going to be evident and eventually you're going to get replaced or, you know, along those lines. But if you're coming in as a generalist, you have to say, okay, I'm just going to like do what it takes. And for me, that meant being in front of Excel for 12 hours a day, right? And Cause I had to, not only was I had, I had all this work to do, but I had to learn a lot of this stuff. And yeah. I think good advice that I received early on was, you know, Google your way to victory. Cause essentially yeah. you can Google basically anything and figure out how to do it. And stack overflow is a great yeah. tool. You know, uh, if you're doing Excel stuff, Excel jet is another great tool. That stuff is going to continue to pop up and you'll just be able to Google your way to victory. And you don't really need to, ask people how to do things often because you can just look at it online. Um, but because I was, you know, in front of a screen, namely looking at tiny Excel cells for, you know, 12 hours a day, my eyes just started to absolutely kill me. And I kind of looked around and I was like, why are my eyes bothering me? Why are my eyes really tired around 3 p.m.? And how come, you know, half my coworkers are complaining about these same issues? And you know, half the people I know that I'm friends with that are now in jobs across industries, whether they're a creative agency as a graphic designer, or they're in an investment bank, you know, you know, they're, they're a programmer, whatever it is, half my friends are complaining about these same issues. So I started digging in, talking to optometrists and ophthalmologists, and learned that a lot of this has to do with what screens produce, namely blue light and glare, right? So blue yeah. lights, high energy light that comes off screens, glares, unnecessary feedback that enters into our eye. The idea was, hey, look, you could, if you can filter blue light, you can eliminate glare, you can create this more comfortable experience um, in front of the screen. You can get rid of the headaches, the dry eyes, the blurry vision, uh, the, the, the eye strain, things along those lines. Except at the time, so I went, I said, okay, great. I always say if, if Felix Gray had existed when I wanted Felix Gray, I would never have started Felix Gray, right? Yeah. <laughs> because at the time, bought a pair. <laughs> yeah, I would have just bought a pair and I would have continued, you know, with with my day and I would have been really happy. And, and that would have been that. And so what I was existing at the time, though, was either these uh, yellow lenses, um, orange or yellow lenses that were effective at filtering blue light, they did work, but they were yellow or orange, and they had 
generally look like hunting goggles that like hunting mm-hmm. glasses that you're putting. So if you yeah. put them all together, you, you put them on, you look like one of the X-Men. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, look, I wear a t-shirt, a sweatshirt to work. I'm in more of a laid back startup environment. I still am, can't wear this. And I, I like, I, I still care about, you know, what I'm, what I look like. Um, and especially people, you know, then who are going to work in a suit and a tie or a jacket, whatever it is, they're also thinking, Hey, like I can't wear this. And then on the other side, there were these clear lenses that basically didn't work. So that's really true today, even as the blue light space has grown. Most clear lenses are filtering only about 2% of blue light where it actually matters where to filter blue light. So a lot of it is placebo. And so I started doing my research. I was like, well, why isn't there something that actually works? And so we ended up developing a proprietary way of filtering blue light. It actually filters 30% of blue light where it matters. And that really responds to really effective product, right? So nine out of 10 people who wear Felix Gray report significant improvement. Uh, our NPS is generally 70 to 80. It's a, in a really good range. Um, word of mouth is still our largest um, way that people actually find out about us. And that's all because of the product that we've built at the effective yeah. level, right? But beyond that, then we said, look, we want your eyes to feel good, but we want you to feel good, you to feel confident who you are at the same time. And so that meant let's develop really beautiful frames, high quality materials using Italian acetate, German metals, stuff that's going to feel great, you know, for your eyes, but you're going to feel great wearing it as well. And so we say on the, the design side, our aesthetic is classic with a modern twist and above all timeless, right? So you should feel comfortable wearing your glasses today or in three years from now and feel just as good in the pair of glasses that you're putting on and your eyes are just are going to feel just as good because of the benefits you're getting from a proprietary lens okay that there were no people doing it you felt the urge to solve your problem and saw an opportunity to to solve other people's problem how much of your drive for for doing it was came from solving your problem versus extrapolating it to a towards a bigger mission what what's the the mix there yeah so i think in the beginning it was listening to it wasn't just a problem i was having right it was a problem that i knew that lots of other people in my network were having right my my friends family coworkers um, and I started doing research, you know, the, um, the, uh, there's a group in, in the U S called the vision council, which is this independent group of optometrists and ophthalmologists. And they were basically estimating based on survey data, about 60% of all Americans were dealing with digital eye strain related issues, right? So there was some market data. I was seeing it anecdotally. I was seeing it for myself. So I knew something, this was something that was important when Chris, my co-founder and I, actually launched the company, we launched first and foremost in January 2016 as a private beta. Because before we launched, direct-to-consumer was very hot and a lot of people were putting a lot of money yep. into direct-to-consumer. And so we said, hey, we're you know, two smart guys. He came from the hedge fund space. I, you know, I came from more of an entrepreneurial background. We thought that we had a really interesting take on a market that had yet to really exist and that we were going to really pioneer that market. And when we went to investors, people say, good luck, you're never going to build a market. Like people don't build (laughs) markets. Um, And, you know, if you're telling me, hey, let's make this nicer version of a suitcase, let's make this nicer version of a bed that's cheaper, great, those things exist. 
you're not getting people to, to buy something new. And particularly when we first launched, we were just selling non-prescription glasses, right? So yeah. if you had contacts or you had 2020, you could wear Felix Grey, but if you had a prescription, you couldn't. Yeah. In 2018, we launched prescription, but for the first couple of years of our existence, it was only non-prescription. So people said, you're not gonna get people to change your behavior. People who don't wear glasses are not gonna wear glasses. And we thought the problem is big enough that if you called out the problem and explained why you're dealing with these negative issues, and providing a product that really actually worked in solving the problem and also looked really good, that you were going to end up creating that market. And that was something that was living right underneath the service and no one had addressed yet. And when we actually launched in this, this beta, we actually went to, we worked with 25 offices around New York City, worked with about a thousand employees. And we go into these offices and we'd give people, we give that company their employees, up to 50 of them, could try Felix Grey for two weeks. And at the end, they could purchase out of their own pocket or they could return them. And we were seeing about one in three people were buying and they had no idea what blue light was. They had no idea what Felix Grey was. They just said, hey, this works. And then we had even more people. We'd pick them up every other Friday. And we'd have people email us back on like a Tuesday saying, hey, <laughs> I wore them all. I didn't wear these on Monday and my eyes are killing me now. Can, can, I, can, can you come back yeah. so I can buy them? Um, <laughs> And so we knew we had something there, right? I think over time, what's important though is I think we're in an interesting category where a lot of people are entering into a crowded space to begin with. They have to define what their mission is, their purpose is. We really came from it from a product and solution standpoint first. But over time, we you know did soul searching to say, well, what do we really stand for? And for us, our purpose is to improve the relationship between people and their technology, right? Mm -hmm. And we believe that if we're able to do that, that we can empower people to live happier, healthier, and more productive, like they can be happier, healthier, and more productive lives in today's screen fill world, right? And so yeah. that's really important to us. If you're if we're improving your, your relationship with technology, you're then empowered to feel happier because your eyes don't kill you. Uh, you're able to feel more productive because you can do that extra two hours of work that you need to get done without feeling actually absolutely exhausted. And we think that that is really important and when we look at the landscape today in general, health and wellness is a $4 trillion industry, right? People care about feeling healthier because it lets them feel happier. It lets them feel more productive. It makes them feel better. And it's a new take on how we should live our lives. So we care about the food that we put into our bodies. We care about the exercise that we do. We care about the type of sleep that we get. And yeah. yet then we sit in front of our desks for 10, 12 hours a day and then go on our couch and watch Netflix or on our phones on, you know, answering email or on Instagram or TikTok. And we know that that's like the not healthy part of our day, yeah. right? <laughs> but that's a lot of our day. And so for us, you know, the advice that people always say is here are ways to be in front of the screen less. While that's great. And it's great to like, obviously take breaks, go outside into nature. I'm a big believer in, in going into the outdoors. I go into the outdoors almost every day, I, I, you know, whether it's for a bike ride or I'm skiing in the winter or whatever it is, um, hiking in the summer, I'm, I'm still like, I still have a job. I still can't just not be in front of a screen. I also enjoy being in front of my screen. I like watching movies at night. I, I like, you know, yeah. you know, scrolling through Instagram. And so I think it's important for us to say, well, how can we build products that will help you have a healthy relationship with your screens during that time, because that's time is still important. It's necessary for your livelihood. And it's also a lot of times a serious form of entertainment, which people want. And 
we think that that conversation around how to improve your digital wellness is something that no brand is owning, whether it's in the eyewear space or otherwise. And that's a conversation that we're really excited to facilitate with you know our consumer base and ultimately lead and pioneer that conversation the same way that we've kind of led and pioneered the blue light glasses space. And, and it makes total sense because even even let's let's call moderate people are starting being to be afraid of technology in, in a way and feeling guilty when they they like enjoy the, the pleasures of technology. And this is a much broader vision and mission that allows you to expand if you want to expand or even if uh, within the the eyewear space uh, it's uh, powerful enough for, for to drive you uh, on the years ahead right yeah we, we say look it opens us to additional product development down the line every product that we have has to be backed by this mission of our is it is it helping improve the relationship between people and technology um, we do that through eyewear and we do that through eye health right now but that doesn't mean that we're 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 confined to that space. It just means we, but, but right now it is important that we stay focused on that space. But I think more importantly than that is the, that conversation is something that is important. And generally at this point, the way that we view brands is there's a human element to a brand, right? Brands should feel authentic. Brands should feel like you're actually able to have a conversation because now with the platforms that exist, particularly through social media and through really strong customer experience teams, you can actually have a two-way conversation with that brand. Yeah. And so for us, being able to participate and facilitate that conversation is something that's really important. And it allows us to go beyond just a product. Even though we have a proprietary product that is more effective, that's not the end-all be-all. It's really important to also, also have an aspirational lifestyle orientation so that customers can really understand, okay, what do you stand for beyond just having really amazing technology? Yeah, that's wonderful. I wanted to unpack a few lessons um, I, I think we had from what you, you commented so far. One of the goals of this podcast is to help people to start their, their own DTC brand or startups and, and this, this kind of thing. The first thing I, I wanted to, to comment on and then ask, ask your perspective uh, around it is the scratching your own each uh, and that part of the of, of the the start which is similar to my my entrepreneurial profile is like reluctantly scratching my own itch <laughs> because when for example i i've started a crowdfunding platform here in brazil that that grew to be to become uh, the biggest crowdfunding platform in latin america but when i started pasco founder of mine always uh, makes this uh, joke he says daniel started the, the crowdfunding platform because he wanted to record a cd <laughs> like, <laughs> and and that's that's true in, in a lot of ways Ways because I wanted to be able to crowdfund my projects, uh, not necessarily a city. Then I ended up creating a startup around it and um, changing, impacting the, the culture of, of our country uh, in a positive way. But it was, um, I, I wasn't looking to, to solve this directly, but I felt a very strong calling towards solving this because I thought and I felt many people would have the same need as I had. And I just wanted to comment on that because I think there are many people right now with entrepreneurial tendencies that are looking for 
for a product to build when the product might be in front of them with with some 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 product they they wish they could buy today and that's that's in my opinion one of the best ways to to start something you you know so much about the problem when you are uh, your your customer right yeah i think that people who are i think entrepreneurs one thing is that they're they're always aware of things that could be better right so yeah. I, i do think and this is you know kind of cliche to to say but you know it's they're not just accepting of the status quo they kind of say yeah. okay like why why they're asking why Like, why is this happening? You know, and, and potentially sometimes if they start exploring, they say, oh, it's happening because actually like it doesn't make economic sense to do something else or, oh, it's happening because there's this, you know, massive, you know, monopoly in this industry. You know, there's, there's all these different things that are wise. And so then you can kind of say, okay, well, why does it have to be? What, what is, is that actually enough of a barrier that doesn't allow innovation to happen in that industry? And so I think that entrepreneurs are always looking from a why perspective of, of, of why, why something's happening, why does there seem to be this inefficiency, and how can they create something that, that helps? I think then the next thing is then, then saying, all right, is it just me, or does this actually, is this a wide enough problem, right? Um, is this something that can actually turn into a business? And Then I think as you're starting to think through building a business, then I, I always got great advice that is it a feature or is it, you know, a product? Is it a platform, right? If it's Perfect. just a feature, um, then someone else is going to end up create like that bigger company that owns that platform will end up just creating that at, at, at some point. Right. So you yeah, get like big enough to make a, make a, story. yeah, exactly. You know, uh, right. And, you know, and I think Snapchat has then done a really good job of saying, okay, well, we're going to be a messaging platform. We're actually yeah. going to create a really good, um, you know, AR experience that, you know, customers are going to gravitate towards. So like they took what could have been very easily duplicated and they could have fallen apart. And now Snap, you know, they're at an all time high in terms of their stock price yeah. because their leadership said, okay, well, you know, how do we grow beyond that? Right. And so I think that, Entrepreneurs have to ask themselves all those questions as they're formulating what that looks like. And then they continue to have to ask them themselves that question as their space grows. Because you could argue that Felix Gray at the end of the day is a feature, right? We are a lens first oriented company. And so there's other blue light lenses out there now. So why would you not go to a bunch of other companies that also sell blue light? Well, early on, we built a product mode where we actually have a proprietary and more effective technology. So that's important. And then we do a really good job. We see ourselves as the most trusted source of blue light in, this, in the industry. So we will help customers guide, you know, what is the difference between this and that, right? So there's the product and the education level, which are really important. And then from a brand perspective, there's no eyewear company besides Felix Gray that stands for your digital well-being, right? Yeah. Like, You know, there's big companies in the U.S. There's Warby Parker, there's Lens Crafters, there's, um, you know, Zenny Optical. Those are all eyewear companies. They're not blue light companies. They might offer an option, but they don't really know what they're offering. It's not ingrained into their culture, into their organization to actually know, okay, what is the difference between X, Y, and Z? Because it's an extra product that they're adding on. And they're also not standing for this idea of, hey, like we're in front of screens a lot. How can we improve that relationship so you can feel happier, you can feel healthier, you can feel more productive? And we earnestly believe that conversation is something customers want 
And that's one of the reasons customers choose Felix Grey over another blue light option. It's not just at the product benefit level, but it's also at this aspirational lifestyle level. Yeah, and uh, you touched on, on your positioning. You're very specifically and very well positioned in terms of the digital well-being and the blue light filtering. I, I wanted to, to point out something that, that, that I think it's important for, for people that are starting a brand and want to position themselves. You probably, and, and I wanna turn, I'm going to turn this into a question, you probably had to say no to so many opportunities uh, over the course of, of, of the story, uh, of your story, in order to remain positioned this way. In other words, the other companies, they do have a blue light product, but they have a ton of other things. If you wanted to re want to remain well-positioned, you should not do anything that's not around digital wellness. And blue, blue light depends uh, on what's the, the biggest position you, you're targeting. But tell me, do you have examples of things you said no to in order to remain well positioned? Yeah. So I'm a big believer in what I call the North Stars, right? So yeah. that we, from a brand perspective, that purpose and proven relationship between people and technology, that comes first, right? And we've actually developed, you know, we have a very significant brand book that has a lot of, you know, our values as a company, our brand values, it has our positioning. And That is something that we can point to and say, okay, does, does this exist? So an example there is we had someone on the operations team that said, hey, look, mirrored sunglasses are really big. We're starting to launch sun. Why don't we launch uh, a mirrored sun lens? And I said, well, are we, you know, our position when it comes to, to sunwear is so we actually, if you're filtering blue light in sunwear, you're able to better distinguish between the reds, the greens, and the blues. So the color clarity mm -hmm. is really amazing. Mm -hmm. And then the way that we tie it back to digital wellness, so not only does it have our blue light filtering pigment to do color enhancement, but often a big problem with uh, sunwear is that the polarized lenses can often distort the screen. So I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it's really good to have polarization when you're you know, on the water and things like that. Yeah. But if you look at your phone, it's often, you know, kind of scrambled. And so we use, it's not proprietary, but you, we use a special thinner polarized film. So you can actually look at your phone totally fine. Right. So we acknowledge, look, you're not going to be on your laptop, you know, out by the beach. That's not, you don't need it for that, but you are still going to look at your phone for X, Y, and Z. How do we tie it back to this idea of like, improving the relationship between people and technology, right? And so when I then asked my director of operations, I said, okay, well, does this lens filter blue light? Does it, does it do anything that we talk about in terms of digital wellness? He said, no. And I said, okay, well, that's the conversation. We were able to stop it really easily. We didn't yeah. have to go any further because it just wasn't part of our mission. And so the same way, you know, we're big believers At the, you know, we actually uh, implemented objectives and key results. So we implemented OKRs about yep. six months ago. And what I found that really helpful is that's also then created its own North Star, its own framework that really put what we had been saying for a long time around, hey, we want to build a company that attains, can attain profitable growth. Hey, we want to build a company that really is the most trusted brand in blue light. And hey, we want to build a company that continues to provide an amazing end-to-end -end customer experience, right? And so those are things that we had kind of talked about, but so but but orienting them and saying, hey, there's three company objectives. 
And if it's, and then all the teams are going to orient their work around these company objectives. And we're going to measure how these objectives are succeeding through a, a, you know, one to three key results per objective. And that was a great way of us being able to, again, we have North stars. So if I have an opportunity come up and I say, okay, well, where does this fit in within our objectives and key results framework? Right. Um, does, does this still make sense? And if it does, where does it fall in the priority list? Does it take precedence? Does it have more of an impact on achieving our key results? Or is this something that's going to like, we're going to do. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, none of the key results will have moved. And I think that that is really important because every day I get new inbounds about things that we could do new yeah. software we could, you know, integrate into, um, and, you know, a, a, a new product we could develop. Like every day I get someone, a new uh, partnership we could do, right? It's part of the job of a CEO, I believe, is to not only lay out the vision, but help make sure that we are continuing to track to that mission, right? And so asking those questions, if it doesn't feel like we're tracking there, because otherwise you're going to do a million things, you're going to do none of it well, and you're not going, you're going to go here, 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 left, right, northwest, south, and all of a sudden you're going to be in the same place. You're going to have used a lot of energy. You're going to have like, yeah. you know, used a lot of energy and you're going to have stayed in the exact same space. Yeah, that's that's wonderful to to hear your reality, like painting this, this um, very hard lesson to learn, right? Because opportunity is tempting. When when you, you when you don't don't have a north star uh, becomes very tempting and usually I'm I'm not trying I'm, I don't know the the eyewear market so well but I'm not trying to say that the other brands don't have as much of a north star as you do because I don't know them but when you said they have a lot of products I know their north star is not the same as yours so you're gonna be uniquely positioned to to do what you're doing. Yeah. And I think, look, that's not to say that other brands don't have North Stars themselves. I think there's been plenty of Iver brands that have been very successful. They just have different North Stars. And yep. so that's important for our positioning, you know, and it's important for their positioning. But our long-term belief is that as the blue light space grows, and then also as the digital wellness space and conversation grows, that we're really well positioned because what we saw in the beginning was we saw in 2016, when we launched, no one knew what blue light was, right? I, I mentioned that. And now people know what blue light is. They know, hey, this is, you know, this is causing a lot of the eye strain I deal with and the headaches I deal with. And so, and that education is going to continue to grow. And if you only had one player in the space that was able to do that, you're going to have a much slower time of getting people to understand that, right? It's good to have, it's kind of rising tides where it's good to have a lot of different products in the market, brands talking about it. But at the end of the day, what we're finding is customers are becoming more discerning as the space grows. He goes, they go, why, why is there a $15 pair on Amazon? <laughs> why is this sunglasses company selling it for $60? Why is there a Felix Gray for $95? And why can I add another $50 to my Warby Parker to sell for $145? And they start asking like, what is the difference? There's all these different price points are all over the place. And that's where our job is to come in and really be the tr most trusted source of blue light, be able to help consumers navigate that conversation, that crowded space, and ultimately to then back it by, you know, a proprietary technology and a lifestyle mission that is oriented around your digital well-being. And we think that that is long-term how we win. You know, short-term, 
you might see, hey, this other company came in and they offer something $10 cheaper. Let's drop prices. Like that's not sustainable. That's just going to create, you know, you have to, you have to hold the, you know, you have to kind of hold the line, like hold steady and continue focusing on that longer term vision. And that ultimately pays off in the long run versus chasing these short little victories. Switching gears uh, a little, what would you say is your biggest challenge right now? Increasing your internal capacity to fulfill demand or generating demand? So I think it is what our, our biggest challenge continues uh, to be is we've done a really good job on the operations and supply side to be able to, to handle the demand. A few years ago, that system was really broken and we really dove in and spent a lot of time fixing it. Um, it is as we grow beyond our own online channel that will continue to bubble up as, as issues, but we have been really good about making sure that that, that stayed constant. Um, and I'd say that demand generation has been really good too. I think for us, the biggest thing that we need to continue to do is to differentiate ourselves from other blue light products, right? And so, you know, why is the technology difference between one and the other? So what are the actual benefits product-wise you're getting, right? And then if you have a great product and your product is better, okay, well, does this brand stand for something more so that I want than another one, right? So we kind of look at it as first and foremost, if you have this great lifestyle brand, but the products you're selling are crap, no one's going to want it and people aren't going to be happy. So you got to start baseline with the product and the product works, right? Like I mentioned, nine out of 10 people report significant improvement from wearing Felix Gray. And then you can start having this conversation on digital wellness. For us, I think our biggest challenge is continuing as customers ask that question, what is different between one and another, that we are able to insert ourselves into that conversation with the customer and that they're able to learn, okay, this is why this is different than that. And that's really helpful for me to know. And so, you know what, I don't need to spend the extra $50 at this brand. I can actually only spend $95 here, but it does make sense that it's $30 more expensive from this other brand, right? And so that's kind of how we look at probably our biggest challenge and why we're really pushing, whether it's through podcast conversations or whether it's through, uh, you know, landing pages or content that we develop on our site or for our socials, that that conversation is continuing to happen. We're helping customers continue to navigate through the more crowded blue light space. Yeah. And you mentioned your operations were, were kind of broken at some point. In my experience, it's very common that you realize you need to improve your internal capacity or operations once you reach product market fit and it's starting to, to navigate the, the, a more steep growth curve for the first time. Was that your case? Was when the, the growth curve became steeper that you had to say, oh, 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 now I need to get better at this? Yeah, I think it was. I don't think it's actually the rate is just the time of which you have to fix it. It's really the, that Y axis, which is like where what point do you hit the breaking point, right? So yeah. if you're on a slow, if you're on a slower growth curve, you're still going to hit that Y axis at some yeah. point, and then right. things are going to break. You just you just know of that stuff potentially sooner, so you have more time to fix it. And for us, what we found was. We had built some parts and some of our partners really scalable parts, uh, like we're really easily able to scale with that growth rate. And really the bottlenecks were some of the things in terms of the quality control procedures we had in place, some of the things in terms of 
um, the shipping providers that we were using, the assembly of the lens and the frame. Some of those were bottlenecks. And what you find is that those issues end up affecting the customer experience, right? And so when operations are negatively affecting your customer experience and you can see that reflected in your NPS and you can see the, that reflected in customer sentiment, that's a problem, right? So we would have you know, an Instagram out and there'd be 10 comments around, I bought these three weeks ago, where are they? Yeah. We don't have that anymore. But it was really important to us to say, if, and that's why it was really important that we solidified those objectives for us. But we always knew, especially coming from like, you know, a, a Tony Shea oriented background, I, you know, providing amazing customer experience was always really important to us. But that's why one of the three company objectives is continue to provide an amazing end to end customer experience. Yeah. And that means that, you know, that doesn't just mean marketing and branding. It just does. It doesn't just mean the CX team. It means the operations team. Can we develop, can we give you a really great product and can we give it to you in a, in a, in a reasonable amount of time. What was the role of software? Be it can be like SaaS products you buy or custom custom built tech. What was the role of software in this transformation when you you said, okay, I need to fix the I need to be able to deliver in a reasonable amount of time for this new demand we have? So software wasn't it was it was really partners and it was the, the partners. partners that we were using um, at part of the supply chain level. And so we then had to build technology to integrate into new partners, but that was not really the bottleneck, right? Sometimes yep. it could be, you know, now look, you mentioned earlier, you know, that you, your wife and your daughter were, you know, using the virtual try-on, right? That came out of the fact that we see that the largest return and exchange percentage is because of fit. We know that customers want to be able, this is something that you're wearing on your face. You want it to make sure that it's going to look good. And so that was an example of our software working to not only does that, you know, if we're lowering the return exchange rate, if we're improving the conversion rate, that's good business for the business model, but you're providing an amazing end-to-end customer experience. You're, you're, you're improving that experience. Right. And so that's an example of where software helped. Um, but I'd say when we were first hitting that scale mark and we were first seeing a lot of breakage, that that had really that really had to do more with the partners than anything else. And as we've continued to scale, we actually just built a much better backbone infrastructure. We built out really important reporting systems so we can get real-time feedback on a lot of this data so that we can, you know, and we built out infrastructure in the company to be able to not only receive that data, but then actually have the bandwidth to be able to work with our partners to fix whatever issues are going on, right? All that stuff has happened. And so we've been able to continue to scale and do so in a really positive way on the operation side. But we definitely hit that row bump and most companies are going to hit that row bump at one point or another. The only thing I'd say is that that's good, right? It's okay for that to happen because you found product market fit. If you build that before it comes, then you're wasting your time. Growth solves all problems, like focus on the growth stuff first. And then as you're starting to see the operations and things affect your customer sentiment, then you just have to be really good about fixing that problem. But don't get ahead of yourself. You know, don't, don't have problem. Don't, don't, don't implement things that don't, you can do things that don't scale in the beginning and that's okay. These issues are 
what we're looking for when we're exploring uh, in the beginning. We want to test the limits of our operations. We want to discover. Otherwise, we're going to be over-optimizing, uh, especially optimizing too early, like you mentioned. Yeah. And how many people uh, does your team have today? So we're about 20 people. Um, and then on any given day, about 60 people touch the product. But a lot of that is through, you know, uh, you know, the work that we do with our third party manufacturing on the frame side. And, you know, we actually do all assembly in the United States right now. So that's also third party, but they're kind of an extension of the team. <laughs> we're very close with them. Yeah. Uh, but they, but, but 20 people are actually at HQ. Perfect. And how fast did you grow to, to 20 people? So we grew, we've been, we've been really careful about growing people too quickly. Um, so I think there's a couple things there. I think that one, particularly in the direct to consumer in the brand physical product space, um, your goal should be about a million dollars plus per employee. Um, I wouldn't say we're, you know, we're closing in on that, but like, that's how I would, how I would view it. Right. And yeah. so you ultimately, you might be at a time period where, Hey, you're a little bit less than that, or you're a little bit more than that, but you kind of need to adjust, but that's really important. Um, so, you know, I think that when you're dealing with physical brands, it, the gross margins, even if they're great, are not going to be as great as software. So you have yeah. to take that into to consideration as you're trying to build ultimately a sustainable business. Um, and then I'd say that we've done a really good job about a lot of companies will raise and I understand why they do it, but they will raise and they will go in a hiring wave and they will hire ahead of that growth curve to see yeah. how far in that growth curve they can get. What yeah. ultimately ends up happening is if they don't hit that growth curve exactly, at, like they don't time it right, that they will end up laying people off because they haven't hit that level and then they'll kind of readjust. While I totally understand that, we thought that that wasn't the right cultural move for us. So we were more focused on how do we maintain longevity with our, with our employees and how do we build a really tight-knit, close culture here and that might mean that, hey, when things are really busy, you're going to have to work a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you can also totally take advantage of like contractors and things like that to help with different things at the bandwidth side without having to bring on full-time employees. But that's just how we viewed it. We viewed it that we did not want to do a big hiring wave and then do a big round of layoffs if and when. Because ultimately, at some point, regardless of where it is, unless you're like Google or Amazon, you're not hitting that like ideal growth curve that your venture capitalist partners want you to hit. And then, you know, you're going to have to lay some people off. You're still on a great growth curve. You just like got a little bit ahead of yourselves. Yep. And I think that that causes um, some friction in the actual long-term culture. That is something that we didn't want to do. Yeah, totally. I, I agree 100% with, with this strategy. And did you end up raising funds for, yeah. For Felix Ray. So yeah, so we um, we've raised we've raised our, our up to a Series A. We think that that will um, enable us to uh, hit profitability. Uh, we're eyeing that in the next twelve months, um, and so we think we continue to grow beyond that um, in a pretty successful way. But I'd say that you know most most brands are going to need to raise some capital. Yeah. Um, it's some brands have. 
whether it's amazing margin or amazing repeat business, um, or they're already one of the founders already has a huge audience as an influencer that, that taps them into like really cheap customer acquisition. Sometimes that, that will happen where you can really bootstrap the whole thing. That's not normal. Um, so I'd say usually brands need to raise a, probably under 10 million is a pretty good place to be. Um, and then I'd say that, you know, the other thing that's important is when you start to create a business and you're actually starting to see progress, raise at the right valuations. So this is something I think people are getting smarter about, but I think there's plenty of people that are still stuck in, this is all paper money and it means nothing. Yeah. And so you having doing 8 million in revenue and raising at a 50 million valuation, that's not aligned with how the market actually looks at something long-term. So now all you've done is you've set yourself up that if you need to raise more capital, you now need to raise it at 100, 150, 200 million valuation for the next time. We like to call it like the hamster wheel of death, right? Yeah. So it's just like you're spinning, you're spinning, you're spinning, you're raising, you're raising, you're raising, you're growing, you're growing, you're growing, but you're burning, you're burning, you're burning. Yeah. And you don't, that's not incentivizing a sustainable business. I think in the physical product world that has definitely been identified that's that's less important in like the technology world tons of companies can go public and still be burning capital things like that but that's that's not that's not something that physical products is 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 really um the 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 longer term part of the market that's not those early investors or those like early vcs that's not something that's there's alignment there and so you have to think like great, you raise, now you have a $40 million company, but that's just paper money. So what happens when like you can't raise at that higher valuation and things like that, and where does that drop off? And so those are you know, things that are really, really important. It's better taking, to me, the way that I think about it is that owning a lower valuation allows for more flexibility. It allows for you to be more in the driver's seat. And if you're still able to maintain significant control of the company, then you're in a good place. But that's something that I think a lot of first-time entrepreneurs don't, they get so excited about the, the number at the term sheet that they're not thinking that that's not liquid value at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah, and it's almost uh, the opposite. The more, the higher you raise, the more you're going to have to dilute later your, your side also. Yeah, and then the, and the fewer, if, you know, if you're interested, you know, some, some companies are totally IPO-able and some are not. Um, and, you know, the higher you raise, the more, the, the fewer buyers are going to be. And yeah. that even exists, you know, at, you know, look at a company like, you know, WeWork that raised yeah. at these crazy, crazy valuations. Everyone said this is essentially real estate. Um, and, you know, now they're in a, in, especially, you know, obviously COVID has hurt them, but way before that, you know, they had, they were you know, a shell of their former self raising at a $40 billion valuation. And you even look at something like Uber when it went out on the market. Now it's at a hundred billion market cap. But when they went out, they were actually, they raised in the IPO lower than what the venture capitalists had actually, you know, yep. put money into them at a private valuation. And so those VCs now had to hold on to their money for an even longer period of time in order to hopefully see that stock price went up it worked out, but you know, those are things. And you know, then you look at more middle markets. If you raise at a 200 million valuation, that means you're selling for four or 500 million. How many buyers are able to sell, you know, buy a four or 500 million company, as opposed to if you raised 
uh, you know, a hundred million, there's more buyers that are able to buy it at two, $300 million valuation. So it's one of those things where the more you raise, the fewer outcomes there actually are that exist. Um, and so I think it's important to, to recognize that if you're on a huge, huge rocket ship, that is going to be multi-billions of dollars. Great. But if you have to convince yourself, like we know we're not going to be a billion dollar company, that's okay. We're building a great company. We're building a great brand where we have a great product. That's fine with us. We just have to, I think, being realistic about what those outcomes are end up creating a lot more ultimate value for everyone involved in the business. One last question, man. Were there any situations where you thought you wouldn't make it as a company? Yeah, a couple of times, um, for sure. You know, I think in the very beginning, obviously there's ups and downs, but then even as you grow, I think one of the things that I really learned is some point a few years ago, we were still growing really well. And we did an accounting analysis because I'm looking at the bank account going down. And I'm like, all right, well, what's our, like, we didn't even know our burn, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> and then we find out, oh my God, we have like six months left and we're still growing. And that meant, okay, look, we have to do an emergency fundraise. And, you know, and we were able to do that. And that then ultimately allowed us to do our series A. And, you know, you know, now we have a lot of that infrastructure in place to actually identify how we're doing growth wise, how we're doing burn wise, you know, all those different things. But, you know, yeah, I, that came, that was almost like a surprise. And then uh, it was, I mean, that was a, that was a, that was a really important lesson in all the boring reporting stuff is really important. <laughs> It's impressive what our mental projections can, can create. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We think, oh, everything's going to be great. Oh, look, we're growing up. And then you, you actually take a look at the numbers and you go, oh, okay. So like, we're still doing great, but you need more cash in order to make sure that you can support that. And You know, we had, you know, luckily for us, we had not raised crazy amounts of money. We had not raised a crazy high valuations. So we were able to do those things, right? It allowed yeah. us the ability to do that. But, you know, I would say that it's really important to have someone who's focused on built, like you will soon as just as you had to build, we had to build up that operational infrastructure as we hit product market fit, building out that reporting infrastructure and that financial and accounting infrastructure is up. That's the boring stuff that a lot of entrepreneurs, especially CEOs, visionaries, they don't, they don't want to, that's not fun, but that stuff is really important. At the end of the day, as CEO, your job is to make sure that there's money in the bank and to make sure that you can continue to grow these operations and continue to execute on, the, the team can execute on the vision. But, you know, that's why I think that that's something that it's a, it's a very boring thing, but it's a really important lesson. David, thank you so much. You're one of those grounded founders that are also creating something huge while at the same time you're grounded and this is this is so much of what we need from entrepreneurs so thank you for sharing your experience and in your story with us man daniel i appreciate the time this is really fun thank you so much man hopefully talk soon yeah sounds good bye bye i'm daniel weinman and this was brave new brands I hope you had a great, great time and were able to learn a lot during this conversation. Please follow me on YouTube, LinkedIn, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming service. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.